Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for, for your love of speaking to your people. Thank you that we have your living words in our hands. Thank you that we have a freedom in this country, in this place, to meet together. And we long that we would hear your voice afresh this evening. Father, if we are in need of comfort, would you comfort us? If we are in need of challenge, would you bring challenge? Would we not leave this place unchanged? But would you be at work, we pray. In your Son's name. Amen. Amen. Um, we, we live in a world where ritual is still a really important thing. That is, ritual being an outward action or activity. Um, and often it's something that we do to get something else. So it may be that we have a morning ritual. Maybe we get up, we have a cup of coffee, bowl of cereal, maybe we read our Bibles, maybe we brush our teeth and grab all the right things and then leave the house. Maybe we have that kind of ritual. Maybe if we're a sportsman or sportswoman, we have a pre-match ritual. You see them, they run out onto the football pitch doing what they do or they put their socks on the right way in the right order or that kind of thing. Uh, maybe there are certain exercises or actions or activities that we have as rituals. Maybe if you're going for a job interview or if you're public speaking and do you have a sort of ritual to help you prepare for things that make you anxious? Rituals can give us assurance and stability in the midst of anxiety. It's, it seems to me it's the familiarity of doing things a certain way where we have the control to give us a confidence in certain situations and contexts where we don't have control. And Leviticus, of course, is a book full of ritual. Um, the big vital difference, though, I think in Leviticus, as opposed to our rituals that we may have in life, is that, that in a sense, the rituals in Leviticus are not so much about us. They are ceremonies and rituals that God has instituted. They are sacrifices, actions, procedures, processes. They're not arbitrary or random, but in a sense they're teaching aids to help us to see something of God's grace and his goodness, to see him at work as he brings wholeness or cleansing or atonement or forgiveness or inclusion back into the community of God's people. We'll have to think about that more um, in a bit. But just to give you an idea of where we've come, or the big picture in Leviticus, um, if you were here at the beginning, and I'll show you an image in a second, um, Dave helped us to understand the structure of Leviticus. And do you remember, that he said that the, the Day of Atonement is the heart of the book. Chapter 16 of Leviticus is at the very core of what Leviticus is about. In fact... Some would say it's at the very heart of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And if Leviticus is the middle of the Torah and the Day of Atonement is the middle of Leviticus, then here we have the core of the core of the first five books of Moses. And yet remember, of course, that Jesus says, these are books about him. Which means he can berate the Pharisees in John's Gospel because they are experts in these books but they have missed the one whom they are all about. They've missed him. 
And our section that we've been given for this evening is Leviticus 11 to chapter 15. I hope you've not got dinner plans or indeed plans for breakfast because we might be here a while. Actually, no, what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on chapter 14 but I want to give you a sweeping overview of 11 to 15 to show you what we're missing out on. Um, Have a look with me, if you will, in your Bibles. Leviticus 11, you'll see, is a, is a, a chapter about clean and unclean food, and particularly animals, which ones you can eat and which ones you can't eat. Chapter 12 is about purification after childbirth. Chapter 13 is about skin diseases and moulds. Chapter 14 is to how to get clean from these skin diseases and moles. This is where we will settle for this evening, chapter 14. Chapter 15 is about bodily discharges. I have to say, I chickened out of going for chapter 15 and thought 14 would be easier. As I say, we're going to spend most of our time in 14 and the first 20 verses or so, because I think what we get in there is we get Um, some lovely principles and characteristics of what God is like, of what these rituals, these ceremonies that he set up, what they teach us about him, the kind of God whom we serve. Um, Before we get into 14 though, I do want to have a look at chapter 11. Um, And I want to do that for a couple of reasons. One, because it's the kind of question that sometimes we have, and I don't want to avoid that, But also, I think, if we go in through 11, we'll see something of what it means to be clean or to be whole. So in chapter 11, you get these different animals listed. Some are clean and some are unclean. And people often try and work out what is the reason behind what God is saying here. Why are some animals clean and why are some unclean? Why can you eat some and why can you not eat others? Um... It might seem like a random detour, but try and stick with me, and I think you'll see it's relevant. Um, If you look at the literature, it seems there are four different theories as to why certain animals are clean and some are unclean. Four different ideas that people have come up with over the years. Um, The first one is, essentially, it's arbitrary. It's the Lord saying, guys, you don't need to know why, just trust me. Just listen to me and just be obedient. It's the parent who says to their kids, I don't want you to have that. No, I'm not going to tell you why you can't have that. Just trust me that you can't have it. Which is probably not great parenting. But it's kind of an arbitrary thing. Is it just God saying, okay, I'm not going to tell you why, just trust me. That's one idea. The second idea um, is sometimes described as cultic, and that is, Unclean animals are designated unclean because they are used in pagan worship elsewhere. Okay, and so to show that God's people worship the true God, that they are separate from pagan worship, then those unclean animals are to be shunned. The way of Israel saying we are not like them and those pagan worshippers, and God is sort of dividing them in that way. Sounds good, doesn't work though. Because very, very often, actually, the pagan um, religions sacrifice the same kinds of animals as Israel. It doesn't quite work. So, arbitrary, cultic, number three, hygienic. That is, unclean animals, some say, are listed because they are more likely to be those who carry disease. 
And actually that does stack up a bit. There is some truth in that, it seems. It's particularly popular in our day because we are obsessed by cleanliness and obsessed by bacteria, and that's just the world we live in. Again, it doesn't quite work. There are some pretty unclean, clean animals. That doesn't work either. And the fourth one, I think, is probably the best answer. And that is that it is symbolic. They point to wholeness or normality. What does that mean? It means that in a Bible framework, starting in Genesis 1 onwards, there are three spheres in the animal world. There are animals that fly in the air, there are animals that walk on the ground, and there are animals that swim in the sea. Okay? Flying in the air, walking on the ground, swimming in the sea. I think the best answer is clean animals are those which obey the norm for their realm. Unclean animals disobey the norm for their realm. So if you are a fish without scales, you are unclean because you are abnormal for your realm of being a fish that swims in the sea, in the water. Or if you are an insect that flies, but you have many legs, then you're abnormal, you're unclean, you're weird. Which essentially means then that cleanness is closely related to wholeness, to normality. It's almost a return to pre-fall conditions. And so those animals that sort of transgress the boundaries that they're not meant to are seen as unclean. If a creature is abnormal, it is out of kilter with creation, it's not quite right, there's a problem, it's unclean, it's not fit for food or it's not fit for sacrifice. There's a thing about hooves as well and divided hooves, but you come and chat to me afterwards about that. I think that is again seen as being normal. So essentially it's those animals that transgress the, the boundaries that they have for their sphere. Why does that matter? Well, A, it probably answers a question that you may have thought of in the past, or if you've not, you will have now. But more than that as well, is to do with showing the fact that this is a section about cleanliness and normality. These clean and unclean animals are living pictures, they are examples of being whole, perfect in one sense, or not. Keep that in mind, and then come to, come to chapter 14 with me. We're in page 115, if you have a Burgundy Bible. I'm going to read from 1 to 20. And I promise, if that intro was a bit weird and you're a bit lost, I think what we'll find here will be easier. Chapter 14 and verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, These are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing, when they are brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. If they have been healed of their defiling skin disease, the priest shall order that two live, clean birds and some cedar wood, scarlet yarn and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. Then the priest shall order that one of the birds be killed over fresh water in a clay pot. He is then to take that live bird and dip it together with the cedar wood, the scarlet yarn and the hyssop into the blood of the bird that was killed over the fresh water. Seven times he shall sprinkle the one to be cleansed of the defiling disease and then pronounce them clean. After that he is to release the live bird in the open fields. The person to be cleansed must wash their clothes, shave off all their hair and bathe with water. Then they will be ceremonially clean. 
After this they may come into the camp, but they must stay outside their tent for seven days. On the seventh day they must shave off all their hair. They must shave their hair, their, sorry, their head, their beard, their eyebrows and the rest of their hair. They must wash their clothes and bathe themselves with water and they will be clean. On the eighth day they must bring two male lambs and one ewe lamb a month old, each without defect, along with three-tenths of an ephah of the finest flour mixed with olive oil for a grain offering and one log of oil. The priest who pronounces them clean shall present both the one to be cleansed and their offerings before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then the priest is to take one of the male lambs and offer it as a guilt offering along with the log of oil. He shall wave them before the Lord as a wave offering. He is to slaughter the lamb in the sanctuary area where the sin offering and the burnt offering are slaughtered. Like the sin offering, the guilt offering belongs to the priest, it is most holy. The priest is to take some of the blood of the guilt offering and put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of their right hand and on the big toe of their right foot. The priest shall then take some of the log of oil, pour it in the palm of his own left hand, dip his right, dip his right forefinger into the oil in his palm and with his, finkle, with his finger sprinkle some of it before the Lord seven times. The priest is to put some of the oil remaining in his palm on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of the right hand and on the big toe of the right foot, on top of, it, on top of the blood of the guilt offering. The rest of the oil in his, his palm the priest shall put on the head of the one to be cleansed and make atonement for them before the Lord. Then the priest is to sacrifice the sin offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from their uncleanness. After that the priest shall slaughter the burnt offering and offer it on the altar together with the grain offering and make atonement for them and they will be clean. Now the big difference of course between animals and leprosy is that the healing of leprosy which is possible or the skin disease as we have is a picture of a broken and unclean world being restored again. There can be movement. Again another um, image that might be helpful for you. I'll give you a moment to take it in. So in the middle you've got on the, your left holy and then clean and unclean. And what happens is you, you can move from holy to unclean through various things that go on, whether they be skin diseases, whether they be bodily discharges, whether they be childbirth or various things. But then you can come back the other way through sacrifice being made holy again. So then unclean to clean to holy. I'll leave that up as I speak for a moment. But we said this before at Magdalen Road, back in Genesis 3, as the first man and woman walk out on God, so relationships with God were ruined. Relationships with God vertically and with each other horizontally. And this leper that we have here in chapter 14 is an actor in God's story showing us the reality of brokenness and abnormality, the reality of Genesis 3 being worked out, of sin and suffering, is a visible picture of uncleanness out of the presence of God, out of community life as we'll see, broken, disordered, disfiguring. Which means as he is cleansed then, as he moves back this way, uh, this way, so his role changes and he becomes an actor not showing us the outworking of chapter 3 of Genesis, of sin and suffering and exclusion, uncleanness, but he's an actor who shows us the part of God restoring someone to himself. 
from brokenness to wholeness, from exclusion to inclusion. And we'll see, I think, that it is a ritual laden with beauty, with imagery, with truth about what our God is like. And I think, I think there are six different stages of cleansing that you get in these verses. And each one, I think, shows us something of what God is like. I think here in microcosm, chapter 14, 1 to 20, we get some beautiful glimpses of the character of our God. Firstly, firstly, he is the God who comes to you, verse 1 to 3. Flick back to chapter 13, 45 with me, 13 verse 45. Let's see where these lepers were, or these with defiling diseases. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes, let their hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of their face and cry out, unclean, unclean. As long as they have the disease, they remain unclean. They must live alone, and they must live outside the house. It's as if, and we've seen it in previous weeks, it's as if they're in a state of perpetual mourning, uncleanness. They live in the place of death, outside the camp, away from God, away from the people of God. They're crying out, unclean, unclean. And you see, because the leper is outside the camp already, so the priest, so, so the God's representative, goes to find him goes to a place of death and uncleanness and brokenness and defilement. In verse 3, he goes outside the camp to examine them. And in one sense that is risky and costly. But at the same time we see something of, of the beauty of what our God is like. Because as the story unfolds, of course, God takes on flesh in his Son, and comes to the place of death to seek us out, bringing, bringing wholeness and cleansing, dealing with suffering and brokenness, coming to make us clean again, truly human again. He, he takes the initiative in coming to us. In the same way that the priest goes into the place of death and uncleanness, so Jesus comes to us. That's the first one. We will go through them quite quickly. The second then is that as he's established that he's clean, then God makes him free, verse 4 to 7. As with much of Leviticus, actually, this is a very a visual ritual. You end up in verse 7 with, with him releasing a live bird into the open field. It's actually a similar pattern to what we'll see in Day of Atonement next week, but with birds this week, goats next. The first bird is killed, have a look down, the first bird is killed and the blood of this first bird is, is then sprinkled over the second bird. And as well as that you've got um, cedar wood, you've got scarlet yarn, you've got some hyssop which is a kind of herby plant and with those things you sprinkle over the one with the disease and the second bird then flies away flies away for freedom in one sense. Maybe it's an image of real life again. It's, it's uncleanness taken away. If birds with tiny brains could grasp it, 
Maybe it would be thankful that it was free and clean because of the death of another. Possibly it could be that the disease is figuratively taken away with the second bird. But as well as freedom for the bird, it's freedom for the person as well. There may be some language and imagery um, in this chapter, in these verses, that are familiar to you. And you're thinking, where does that come from? Psalm 51. Do you remember King David? He's committed horrible adultery with Bathsheba. He's tried to cover it up. He's ensured that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, falls in battle. And then David comes before the Lord, Psalm 51, and says, Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. And it was hyssop that spread the blood over the doorframe in Exodus 12, the first Passover. And you know, it was hyssop that fed Jesus the vinegar while he was on the cross. Hyssop is meant to be associated with blood and death and substitution and sacrifice and cleansing and freedom. This is the God who makes us free. Thirdly, I think we see he is the God who makes us new, verse 8 to 9. Let me read this again. I had not seen this before, but I find this fascinating. I think I'm persuaded. Um, See what you think. Um, The person to be cleansed must wash their clothes, shave off all their hair, bathe with water, and then they will be ceremonially clean. After that, they may come into the tent, into the camp, sorry, but they must stay outside their tent for seven days. On the seventh day, they must shave off all their hair, shave their head, their beard, eyebrows, the rest of their hair, they may wash their clothes and bathe themselves with water and they will be clean. On the eighth day they must, and he continues. So they are gradually re-entering the community again. They've been on their own outside camp shouting, unclean, unclean. Now they're being gradually reintroduced. They're not into their tent yet. Presumably they're clean, but not totally clean perhaps. But the, good, the question is, why do they remove all their hair? I'm sure partly it's a medical thing. To check it's all gone, they shave themselves entirely and you can see that the skin disease is gone. But then again, look at verse 10 and you see it's the eighth day that they do this. That seems to be quite specific. On the eighth day they must bring their sacrifices. That sounds like the start of a brand new week. It's a new beginning. It's on the eighth day actually that that, um, circumcision was to happen when, when babies were introduced into the covenant community. That was the eighth day when that happened. I say something, maybe they are shaved because they are becoming like a newborn. John Calvin thinks so. He says this, he says, As infants on the eighth day after they were cleansed from the uncleanness which they had brought from the womb were grafted into the church and made members of it, so now the eighth day is prescribed for the restoration of those who, in the cure that they have received as if they were born again, for they are accounted dead whom the leprosy had banished from the whole congregation, but now they are alive. Striking, isn't it? Maybe the, the boldness, the removal of all the hair, is a picture of a brand new start, a brand new week, a brand new beginning. Maybe they're being born again. Fourth one, he is the God who makes atonement possible. Um, If you've been around in previous weeks, perhaps you've spotted or you've worked out that pretty much in these verses, every sacrifice is undertaken. 
It's the whole shebang. It's a guilt offering, it's a sin offering, it's a wave offering, it's a burnt offering, it's a grave offering. It's a grain offering. And at the end of the section we are told why all these things happen. So in verse 18, when the head of the one to be cleansed and make atonement for them before the Lord. Or verse 19, the priest is to sacrifice its own offering and make atonement for the one to be cleansed from their uncleanness. Or verse 20, offer it on the altar together with the grain offering and make atonement for them. Atonement is, as sometimes people say, at one moment, being brought together again where there was division, now there is unity. There's a price being paid, there are sacrifices being made for the cleansing of the leper, leading him back into the community, making him right again with God. And so in a sense what we get is the fact that these skin diseases are in one sense imagery from God of a deeper issue going on. This external disease on the outside points back to Genesis 3, points back to an internal problem where the relationship with God is broken, where suffering has come in for the first time. In a sense, these skin diseases point to the reality of our sinful hearts. That's why atonement is needed. They remind us, they they remind the Israelites of of their need not just of external cleansing, dealing with the outside, but internal. The need for atonement the need for restoration, the need for sins to be dealt with, the far deeper issue of a brokenness, a broken relationship before God. So the God who comes to you, the God who makes you free, the God who makes you new, the God who makes atonement possible, fifthly, the God who anoints you, verse 14 to 17. Uh, If you were here two weeks ago, we saw this pattern. It was... It was with the high priest, you remember? It was a bit strange. He gets anointed with oil on his earlobe, right earlobe, on his right thumb, and his right big toe. And here again, verse 14, the priest will take some of the blood of the guilt offering, put it on the lobe of the right ear of the one to be cleansed, on the thumb of their right hand, and on the big toe um, of their right foot. We said a couple of weeks ago that the, the right side of the body was supposed to be sort of dominant and therefore represents the whole body, so that's probably why he's not having a go at left-handers. Um, he does the same thing then in verse 17 of oil again on right earlobe, right thumb, right big toe. And we said with the high priest that maybe it's a picture of sort of total handing over to the Lord. It's the totality of his body and his person. Outside the camp where they would have had to live before, they wouldn't have been able to have conversations with the community. All that they would hear would be themselves shouting, unclean, unclean. They wouldn't have been able to go where they wanted to go or do what they wanted to do. But now they can, because now they are set aside, set apart for the Lord. They're clean again. Now he can speak and interact and engage and use his ears. Now he can walk around and be a part of the people. Now he can engage and play his part to serve, to, to work. Now he is totally restored. Now he's a fully-fledged member of the covenant community of God, set apart for a purpose. And then sixthly, you get the God who makes you clean, verse 20. I love this, I love how it ends. 
they will be clean. That is the words left ringing in our ears. That is the message to take away. The story began, 13 verse 45, crying out, unclean, unclean. Covered face, torn clothes, unkempt hair. The final word ringing in our ears, now. Now they will be clean fully human, fully integrated, fully reconciled, fully clean. And you wonder what the leper in Mark 1 knew about this. Do you remember that story? Do you remember as he comes to meet Jesus? Let me read it again for us. You wonder whether we might find it all the more poignant now that we know what ought to have happened. Let me read for us, Mark 1, verse 40. A man with leprosy came to Jesus and begged him on his knees, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus was indignant. He reached out his hands and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Jesus sent him away at once with a strong warning. See that you don't tell this to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Instead, he went out and began to talk freely, spreading the news. As a result, Jesus could no longer enter a town openly, but stayed outside in lonely places. Yet the people still came to him from everywhere. What do you think this leper expects of Jesus? as he approaches him. Maybe, maybe he had heard the, the story of Naaman and Elisha, which you might be familiar with as well, but, but this? Because it's meant to take a week to get clean. But Jesus, with Jesus' instant cleansing, just like that, their compassionate touch, it wasn't necessary, Jesus can heal with the words, but he touches him. And he sends them off to the priests. So, presumably the priests can then retrospectively do the sacrifices, give him the all clear, welcome him back in again to the community of God's people. But it's striking, isn't it? it you realise, having just read Leviticus 14, and compared that with Mark 1, that here you have the Gospel in miniature, here you have this God, who comes to us, who makes us free, who who makes us new, who makes atonement, who anoints us, who makes us clean. Here you have him taking on flesh and making, making dead people alive again. Excluded people included. Unclean people clean. Because, of course, we too, like the leper, are unclean. In a sense, we are naturally separated from God outside the walls of the camp, spiritually dead, so we're shouting, unclean, unclean, don't come near me. But Jesus takes on flesh and comes to the camp, outside the camp, and he finds us. And yet later he himself is taken outside the camp as he dies on the cross for us. He makes the atonement that we need. He is the sacrifice that we long for and require. 
He is cut off that we might be brought in. He becomes unclean that we might be clean. He is excluded that we might be included. He dies that we might have life. Our God is so good and so kind. Let's pray to him now and then we'll respond as we sing to him. Father, we confess that Leviticus 14, in one sense, feels a long way off from us. Such a different context, such a different period in salvation history, such a a different set of ways of doing things, and yet we do see your your beauty behind what goes on here. We, We thank you that in Christ you are the one who came to us. as he took on flesh. Thank you that he comes and makes us free and makes us new. Thank you that he offers himself to provide the atonement that we need. Thank you that by your spirit you come and you anoint us that we might be holy and fully and totally set apart for you. Thank you that you make us clean. Lord, we confess that so often we we don't live as we ought. Even though we are yours, even though we are united to Christ by faith, you are still at work in us. We thank you that you make us clean, but we pray that you would be transforming us increasingly into the likeness of Jesus that increasingly we might display your beauty to a watching world. In his name we pray. Amen.